I was watching the Chinese Communist Party Congress. You can actually find it. It's on YouTube where you can actually watch Xi's speech. You got to do a little bit of searching, though, kind of ironically, I find. In our mass media information age, sometimes you got to do a little digging to find these major things. And it's quite long. There's like an hour and 55 minute video with most of it, a speech by Xi. I watched the first half. I mean, it's interesting. There were a few kind of takeaways. I mean, he's interestingly banal. Uh, one of the things about him. I mean, even his effectless disposition, which I'm sure you've noticed, I mean, there's never any emotion on his face. There's never anything to really bounce off of. It's just uh, this effectless disposition, which maybe if I was talking to 1.4 billion people and addressing them about how they should make me their leader and keep me leader for life, uh, maybe I would also adopt pragmatically a effectless disposition. And this is trademark for him. But nevertheless, another takeaway, though, was I got the impression that the a lot of the party members there, and it kind of had a State of the Union feel to it, even with the trumpets and horns blaring beforehand and all that, it really had an American feel to it, weirdly, to me, I mean, unconsciously. Uh, the real big takeaway, though, was the fear in the party members there. I mean, as the camera would kind of scroll by, just like an American kind of production, you saw lawmakers just scribbling notes furiously over what President Xi was saying and, you know, underlining. It's like they had a copy of the speech in front of them and they're just like underlining and, you know, as the camera would go by. Another takeaway, which kind of adds to this kind of fear thesis is as soon as the Taiwan issue came up, what did he say? Basically, we're not going to tolerate foreign interference and we're not going to rule out the use of force. As soon as that line came, the clapping came within milliseconds. And there was no clapping that I had heard up until that point. But as soon as Taiwan came, it was just like a cue. And you better not be the last person to clap was the feeling I got there. Like, you better not be the last person to clap because that one, you, yeah. So just to me, and I mean, maybe you would have a completely different interpretation, but to me, the fear was palpable. It was palpable. So that was, to me, almost a big takeaway out of anything because uh, that kind of spoke for itself. I mean, that's just an interpretation. Zooming out a bit here, British tenure guilt seemed to have temporarily at least come under control. The new finance minister replacing Kwasi Kwarteng, he has kind of not only thrown out the mini budget, but then he's basically also said that the subsidies on energy are going to stop in April to be reviewed. So actually, that doesn't change a thing. But it was quite hilarious to watch the British announcers there. They seemed a little bit concerned that their bills might be going up after really just a nonstop attack on Liz Truss and, and Kwasi Kwarteng. It seemed like they were actually, it was for the first time, they seemed a little bit concerned that maybe the budget was in their favor. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, looking at gold and silver, if we look at gold, looking at the markets here, uh, gold is at $1,660.70. So again, nothing to write home about unless you're a buyer. If you're a buyer, you then you're starting to get kind of interested, I would think. Silver, well below $20 at $18.76. Copper at $3.39. So opportunity knocks if you're a commodities bull. And 
another kind of interesting thing, the U.S. 10-year bond is at kind of normalizing, it feels like, at 4%, 3.97%. I mean, it's the same as the U.K. 10-year. They're exactly the same. So that is also interesting. And turning to oil, WTI, West Texas Intermediate Oil, is at $85.41. And Brent crude, which is more the international price, from my understanding, is at $91.75. So I don't think Joe Biden loves those prices, but I think he could do worse than $85 on WTI. I think he's got to call that a win for himself with elections in the pipeline those will be fascinating to watch. So hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and we have a big event coming up here. We have the Canadian Mining Symposium, November 28th. So this is a very limited seating. So if you're interested, if you want to apply for an investor pass, they are very limited. If you go to events.northernminer.com and then click on Canadian Mining Symposium, it is November 28th and 29th, and just put RSVP here going for a delegate pass, and I assume there's some sort of credentials, and yeah, I will be going as well, so we can all hang out. That should be a lot of fun. I have bought my plane ticket there. I need to buy it back. So that is happening, and it should be an all-star lineup, uh, which should be released in the coming weeks, it'll be at Canada House right in the middle, in the heart of London there. So that will be a great event. And coming up this episode, we have an awesome speech from Douglas Silver, who gave the keynote presentation at the Global Mining Symposium a few weeks ago, about three weeks ago now. And it's actually a really fascinating speech on how well Canada is doing from a mining perspective internationally. So uh, very useful information for us. And he did a ton of research. And what he found is that Canada, as he put it, is the center of the universe. And he's American. <laughs> so that's interesting. So a very informative presentation full of data from Doug Silver, keynote presenter at the Global Mining Symposium only about three weeks ago. And also coming up, we have a wonderful interview with Hugh Agro, president and CEO of Revival Gold. And we learn about the Bear Track Are Not project. Looks like they're doing quite well and also hope to have some production coming on to help fund more exploration. Looks like all systems go over there in Idaho with Revival Gold. So that is coming up and a ton of very interesting news stories coming up here. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to Hugh Agro, President and CEO of Revival Gold for this week's CEO Spotlight. Joining me today... I am very pleased to welcome back Hugh Agro, President and CEO of Revival Gold to the Northern Miner Podcast for this week's CEO Spotlight. Hugh, welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me, Adrian. Super to be back. Well, it's great to have you again, and it's really interesting to follow your story. I mean, you guys, Revival Gold is based in Idaho. So tell me, what is new with Revival Gold and your Bear Track Arnett Gold Project. Well, it's been an exciting past few months. Those who've been watching the story know we're putting out high-grade results on our Bear Track Arnett Project in the western U.S. state of Idaho. 
in most recent results, uh, 3.5 grams over 115 meters, within which we're getting 10 grams over another 11 meters. So this is a project that's continuing to produce. This is a follow-up from our drilling last year and some of the drilling earlier this year, where we're building out a high-grade core in our JOS zone of now a kilometer of strike uh, at Bear Track RNN. Pretty exciting past few months. Well, absolutely. So you are drilling right now, and you mentioned earlier that you were working on a PFS at Bear Track. What is going on with that? We're moving towards the PFS for completion by middle of next year. There's a lot of work going on uh, in respect to that PFS, uh, including metallurgical test work where we're getting 92% recovery in our oxide material at uh, our net. This compares to 75%, which was assumed in our, in our resource update uh, from May this year. So moving in the right direction there, two drill rigs on the Haiti deposit right now as we continue to uh, improve on the resource and uh, potentially expand on that resource for the PFS. So marching ahead with the PFS uh, in addition to that drilling I just mentioned on the JOS target area, uh, our high-grade um, potential. Okay, excellent. What is next? You have the PFS, you have the metallurgical results, you have the jurisdiction. I mean, are, are there any issues with the jurisdiction? I mean, it would seem that that is a good place to be located. Yeah, well, we're very happy to be in the uh, western U.S. right now, particularly as we look at what's happening in South America, Chile, Peru, left-leaning uh, movements in Brazil, coups in Burkina Faso and Africa. I mean, it's just such a nice place to be. The team is um, working very well there without uh, any any issues. In fact, our permitting uh, just completed a fifth drill permit on the project area, so our permitting is going very well as, as well. It's a very advantageous place to be. Project resource is now 4 million ounces of gold, and I, I think it's... Um, as yet to be discovered, uh, in a sense, we're, we're trading at about 8 to $10 an ounce in the ground. And we know from the statistics from the various different banks that the typical takeover price of these companies runs at uh, $60, $70 an ounce. And I think there's a ton of upside in the exploration sector right now. With the continued health and uh, fitness of the producers, from a balance sheet point of view, running out of resources to, to fill their, their cupboards for the next phase of, of, of growth, I think that puts even more of a spotlight on companies like Revival Goal with our exploration development in the United States. How far along are you then? Like if I'm a major and I'm looking for a project, you know, I guess you can always drill more. What's the roadmap as we look out two or three years? Is it simply to add ounces? Two phases to our, our future, really, um, Adrian. First phase is to go back into production from the existing infrastructure that we have at site. That's a relatively modest scale of project, uh, about 70,000 ounces a year of gold production. Uh, but we can do it from existing infrastructure, and we have the team in place that uh, has run this project before. So lots of capacity to move through to production here over the next three years. And then beyond that, we're continuing to explore because we've got uh, deposits open in all directions on a 5.6 kilometer trend of mineralization. 
Uh, I think that's very exciting for the industry, particularly, as I say, it's in the United States, so good location. And really, we've we've not found the end of it yet. So we're going to be doing both. First phase is to go into production and produce free cash flow from a heap leach uh, phase of this project. A second phase is to look at going underground, uh, developing out the mill potential, uh, potentially a mill open pit as well. And we're continuing to grow that as we speak. So... For our investors out there, and we have a lot of investors that listen to the program, they see a whole bunch of, you know, junior mining stocks or explorers. And it's actually pretty tricky, as you might know, uh, to figure out which ones to pick. Like from your perspective, what makes Revival Gold stand out from its peers? Jurisdiction. Secondly, the infrastructure that we have on the site, it'll save us uh, 40 to $50 million of capital and uh, will allow us to move more quickly to producing free cash flow. And then thirdly, I'd say we're in a very special deposit. This is an orogenic gold system. It's mapped out over 5.6 kilometers of trend. This is a very unique in the world of geology. 4 million ounces of resource currently, but we see scope for a whole heck of a lot more. And that's what makes this a very special deposit and a very special situation for investors. Absolutely. So how long have you been working on this deposit? Since 2017. There's a lot more history to this land position. It actually dates back to the founding of the state of Idaho in the uh, mid-1800s. Over 5 million ounces of gold have been discovered or produced uh, from this area. It's been very prolific. And uh, it's just being brought through this revival, if I can use that word, in the new century. And um, it's pretty exciting stuff. Over the course of the last five years, we've taken the resource from zero to now four million ounces of gold. And we've done that at a finding cost of less than $5 US per ounce. So very efficient team, very productive deposit, trading in the order of 8 to $10 an ounce on the market today. Uh, but worth a whole heck of a lot more. And as we continue to grow ounces, we're doing that efficiently for the benefit of our shareholders. Sure. And finally, uh, could you tell us about the team? It looks like from the website here, you have some pretty experienced people. Yeah, it's always the case that the good people go to the good projects. And we've been very fortunate. Our VP Exploration, Steve Priestmeyer, has worked up and down the Cordilleran and uh, actually did his master's degree in the state of Idaho, uh, back in the state working on this project with me from the very start. Our general manager, Pete Blakely, uh, ran the operation at Bear Track when it was last in production, of course, closed in the 2000s. Pete's a, an ex-Rio Tinto engineer, worked on the Andean Discovery down in Argentina, and is now back in Salmon, Idaho, uh, working on Bear Track Arnett. And finally, John Mayer, who just joined us from uh, one of our peer companies, background with Kinross and with Barrick, building projects like this in the state of Idaho. He's uh, just a super uh, hand on engineering and development and uh, rounds out our technical operational team. We're very fortunate with these uh, folks and uh, with the, the productivity that we're getting out of our uh, our exploration team. It's testament to the quality of the asset and the attraction of working at, at home. It sounds like a lot of things are going right for this project. So in closing, what is your message to investors? What do you want them to know? We want to be on the radar screen for investors. I think this is an exciting project that has a bright future. Uh, we've proven that we can find gold and find it efficiently. We are moving quickly towards uh, free cash flow with our first phase heap leach project. And at the same time, we're continuing to build out the high-grade potential at our Joss project, where we've now got 
a kilometer of strike. We've got some super intercepts uh, in the system, and it's our excitement beyond the uh, the first phase free cash flow scenario. It's a pretty unique situation. It's a great time to be investing in the junior exploration and development companies in the gold space. A lot of uh, upside leverage to the metal price, which we know is uh, on the rise here on, in these fiscal uh, times, uh, monetary times. It's a good time to be in our industry. And uh, I think Revival Gold is uh, definitely one to have on your radar screen and, and in your portfolio. And as we close, if people want to learn more. I guess they can go to revival-gold.com. And you are on the Venture Exchange. Is that correct? RVG is the symbol on the uh, Venture Exchange and RVLGF on the OTCQX. Excellent. Hugh Agro, President and CEO of Revival Gold. Thank you for joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. Thank you, Adrian. And we'd like to thank Revival Gold for sponsoring this week's episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. Turning to the website Zijin Mining to buy Rosabelle from IM Gold for $360 million. Adding to their portfolio, this is by Cecilia Jamazmi, and it says here Canada's IM Gold said on Tuesday it had agreed to sell its stake in the Rosabelle Gold Mine in Suriname to Zijin Mining in a deal valued at $360 million. The Chinese miner will acquire IM Gold's 95% interest in Rosabelle Gold Mines, which owns the Rosabelle operation and a 70% participating interest in the Saramaca Mine, a satellite for Rosabelle. Zijin is also assuming IM Gold's equipment lease liabilities amounting to about $41 million. The Toronto-based miner revealed in January it was evaluating options for Rosabelle and said the mine required a material capital investment to address certain challenges. Kind of sounds like they were done in by a low gold price. IM Gold said the proceeds of the sale would be invested in the ongoing construction of the Cote Gold Project in Canada which is $1.9 billion over its original cost estimate of between $879 million and $925 million. Low gold price and inflation. That is what looks like is going on here. The company's share of the cost overrun is $1.3 billion. Cote is expected to produce an average of 489,000 ounces of gold per year in its first five years, and an annual average of 367,000 ounces over 18 years of its planned mine life, it would be the company's fourth mine. Chairperson and interim president and CEO Maurice Belanger said that the transaction with Sijin was a significant step forward in pursuing IM Gold's strategy of disciplined portfolio management. Quote, Rosabelle has been an important contributor to IM Gold, and we are pleased that a company with the capabilities and reputation of Zijin will be taking over this operation, she said. The transaction is expected to close early in the first quarter of 2023 or earlier, subject to closing conditions being met. So another mine goes over to Zijin Mining. Interesting. And in South Africa, there is a port strike, which is causing some problems for miners. This is by Bloomberg News via mining.com. Miners' losses mount as port strike drags on in South Africa. A strike at South Africa's port and rail operators, Transnet SOC, that's cost bulk mineral exporters as much as $538 million, continued for a 12th day, with the company and labor unions struggling to agree on wage increases. The walkouts by workers that began October 6th cost shippers of iron ore, coal, chrome, and ferrochrome, and manganese about 815 million rand a day, 
because they're unable to rail and load the exports onto ships, according to the Minerals Council South Africa. Well, that's not going to help inflation, is it? Quote, there is limited exports from harbors, end quote, and rail movements are severely constrained. Alan Sacombe, a spokesman for the lobby group, said Monday in a response to questions, negotiations to reach a pay deal have been unsuccessful even after the government and an arbitration body joined the discussions between Transnet and its biggest labor unions. The virtual shutdown of South Africa's monopolistic logistics company is taking a broad toll not only on mining and agricultural exports, but service businesses and others involved in supply chains. Quote, parties are still engaging, Transnet spokeswoman Ayanda Shezi said in a reply to questions. And Amanda Chemezi, a spokeswoman for the South African Transport and Allied Workers Union, said by phone, quote, members are still on strike. So big strike in South Africa at the ports. And continuing our trip around the world here, Germany is looking to Mongolia in push for critical raw materials. Now, Mongolia is right between China and Russia, which Germany has alienated, so I'm not sure of the strategy. I mean, didn't Mongolia just have a big meeting with China and Russia, and they're going to put a pipeline through Mongolia? Anyways, okay, so this is by Bloomberg News via mining.com. Germany wants to expand investment in Mongolia to help secure strategically important raw materials including copper and rare earths, according to Chancellor Olaf Scholz. Like, I mean, if there was a serious war between the West and China, or the West and China and Russia, I'm not sure you're going to keep getting your copper and rare earths from Mongolia, is my sense, but maybe there's just not that many places to turn. The East Asian nation, sandwiched between Russia and China, can be a reliable partner for Germany as it seeks to diversify suppliers and guarantee access to the materials it needs in areas like battery and chip production, Schultz said Friday. You know what this reminds me of? This, like, reliable supplier? Doesn't that just remind you of Angela Merkel and Russia with energy? Like, it just seems like the exact same situation with different players here. And so he had talks with Mongolian Prime Minister Oyun Erdeni, Lufsan Mrzai in Berlin, and Schultz continued, quote, what is important now is that very concrete projects are identified where cooperation can be taken forward. Schultz told reporters at a joint news conference, Germany wants, quote, many good partners around the world as it looks to avoid, quote, placing all its eggs in one basket. Okay, so that's good. Uh, so it is diversifying. So, now I know Schultz came to Canada. I mean, I heard, and that's just things I saw on Twitter, that they were kind of shut down by Canada. For natural gas, I don't know what the deal is with that, though. So if anybody wants to leave a comment, feel free. Major economies like Germany are competing fiercely for increasingly scarce resources, and access to metals and rare earth is crucial for the climate and digital transitions. It's also crucial for car companies based in Germany. So Germany turns to Mongolia to diversify its supplies Barrick is close to building a $7 billion U.S. copper project in Pakistan as a 50% owned asset. Some interesting words from Mark Brissow in this piece. This is by Cecilia Jamazmi. Barrick Gold said on Monday it had achieved a significant legal milestone to proceed with the development of the giant Rikodik copper gold deposit in Pakistan close to the borders of Iran and Afghanistan. 
During a four-day visit to the country, President and CEO Mark Bristow held discussions with several stakeholders, which finished with all the documents needed to start building Rico Deke, being approved by the country's President Arif Alvi. Paperwork was filed on Saturday with the Supreme Court, Barrick said, adding that once transactions are completed, the project will be owned 50% by Barrick, 25% by the provinces of Balochistan, where the asset is located, and 25% by major Pakistani state-owned enterprises. And scrolling down, the Rico Deke project, which hosts one of the world's largest undeveloped copper gold deposits, has been on hold since 2011 due to a dispute over the legality of its licensing process. Barrick solved a long-running dispute earlier this year, reaching a preliminary out-of-court deal that cleared the path for a final agreement on how to run the mine and profit-sharing arrangements. The project is now seeking financing partners with a target of 50% debt to total capitalization. And they expect to deliver production as early as 2027-2028, which sounds pretty fast. Bristow said in May that he had worked in challenging situations all his life and that he was, quote, very comfortable, end quote, with the project. He added that this was the, quote, perfect opportunity for the mining industry to demonstrate what it can bring to an economy, end quote, of a region that has been neglected, and struggles to get access to potable water. So, Barrick pushes ahead in Pakistan with Rico Deek. On the home front here, Valet opens first phase of $945 million copper complex expansion in Sudbury. This is by Cecilia Jamazmi. Valet, the world's largest iron ore and nickel producer, has opened the first phase of a $945 million expansion at its Copper Cliff Complex South Mine in Sudbury, Ontario. The project's initial expansion is expected to nearly double ore production at the operation, adding about 10,000 tons of low-carbon nickel and 13,000 tons of copper production per year. And we have a quote from Ontario Mines Minister George Puri. The materials that we're mining here in Copper Cliff are nickel and copper and cobalt, absolutely critical minerals if we're going to achieve that revolution in our economy, and it's happening right here in Sudbury. More than 12 kilometers of tunnels were developed to link the south and north shafts of the Copper Cliff mine. Construction of the complex created 270 new jobs and spanned more than 5 million people hours, moving over 600,000 tons of rock, Valet said. And they said in a statement, quote, Feasibility studies are currently underway for future development phases of the Coppercliff Mine Complex, with potential to deliver sustainable and responsibly sourced minerals essential for a low-carbon economy well into the future. Interesting. So... Expansion in Ontario and turning over to Saskatchewan, Uranium Energy's Athabasca deals part of, quote, unprecedented M&A wave in uranium and nuclear assets. This is by Colin McClelland on the Northern Miner. Uranium Energy says it's building a, quote, critical mass of uranium projects in northern Saskatchewan's Athabasca Basin, including the recent $150 million purchase of Rio Tinto's Rough Rider project. The cash and shares deal last Wednesday came after UEC first entered Canada's premier uranium zone just three months ago with a $244 million purchase of UEX Corp, besting Denizen Mines for the asset and adding to the Christie Lake, Hidden Bay, and Horseshoe Raven projects on the basin's eastern side to UEC's portfolio, The Vancouver-based company has predominantly operated in Texas, Wyoming, Arizona, New Mexico, and Paraguay. None of its assets are currently in production. UEC has spent $570 million in the last year to acquire Uranium One Americas, UEX, and Rough Rider, 
tripling its total resource inventory across multiple assets. UEC Chief Executive Officer Amir Adnani said in an interview the company hopes to increase its total measured and indicated resources to 350 million pounds. That would give UEC the third largest resources of companies operating in the region behind Cameco and French state-owned Rano. We're looking at how we can bulk up with critical mass, bringing a number of projects together, Adnani said by phone on October 13th. Quote, we want to keep buying assets because we think they're cheap right now. So those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. And turning to metal prices, let's just take a quick look at the 10-year U.S. Treasury bond, and it's yielding 3.982%. So this is 0.09% higher, so just below 4% here. So we have seen a pretty steady increase in the last, you know, six or seven weeks. It was at 3%. Now it's at 4%. Turning to precious metals, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. Gold is trading at $1,653 per ounce. That is $12 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $18.74 per ounce. That is $0.64 lower than last week. Platinum is trading at $921.44 per ounce. That is $28 higher. Than last week, and palladium is trading lower at $2,017.50 per ounce. That is $175 lower. So the illiquid palladium market continues to make big moves. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is up five cents at $3.49 per pound. Aluminum is down a penny at $1.05 per pound. Lead is also down a penny at 93 cents per pound. And nickel is at $9.94 per pound. That is 20 cents lower than last week. And tin is a penny lower at $9.06 per pound. Cobalt is unchanged at $23.26 per pound. And zinc is 5 cents lower at $1.34 per pound. Zooming out, it looks pretty bleak for gold and silver. I mean, gold is still above the price from a month ago at 1635 so i guess there's some good news there but falling this morning here down to 1653 and silver is also above its previous low that we recorded at $18.27 so i guess that's also i guess it could be worse but gold and silver fall industrial metals basically sail forward as well as platinum and palladium i mean the real big standout here is Platinum. Platinum is, you know, $28 higher. So no huge moves here. Kind of a mixed bag on industrial metals, uh, with gold and silver really being the standouts going lower. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Douglas Silver, mineral economist and keynote speaker and author. He spoke at the Global Mining Symposium in late September, and this is his feature presentation. He has a pretty storied career here. He's started at Anaconda Minerals. Uh, He co-founded in 2003 International Royalty Corporation. 
And in 2018, he was inducted into the U.S. National Mining Hall of Fame. And he has several accomplishments, which are too numerous to mention here. And so he gives a very interesting speech using a ton of data on how Canada is doing in the global mining industry. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. What I'm going to do today is I'm going to show you why Canada is the center of the mining universe. This is a very data-rich study. It took about seven or eight months to put together. And, and there's a lot of numbers in here you've never seen before. So uh, I want to share them and explain them to you. Now, with all good studies, you have to have caveats. Now, if this was a public company presentation, these would be my legal weasel words. But from the perspective of this study, I'm only looking at public mineral companies. And I had to use a December 31st cutoff date because it takes months to do the analysis. And because there's so many projects and companies involved, it just takes a lot of time. All of my numbers are in U.S. dollars unless otherwise specified, and that's because gold is designated in U.S. dollars. And as you're going to see, gold plays a major role in, in the mining industry. I took a look at stock exchanges, and as you know, many companies have multiple listings. So I had to figure out a way to tag them to one listing. So what I did is wherever their home headquarters was located, the stock exchange that they were listed on in that country became their primary stock exchange. This allowed me to remove the cross listings and, and have the data being a lot tighter. And then finally, I'm gonna talk about gold resources and it's the sum of measured, indicated and inferred resources. Now I realize that, that the securities regulators don't want you combining these, but I'm talking about global endowment and this is not an investment speech. So why Canada? First of all, Canada is located in the Northern hemisphere. Why is this important? Because the Northern hemisphere represents 67% of the earth's lands accounts for 73% of the country and 87% of the global population. I personally think it's better to live on land than underwater. So being in a big area with a lot of land, a lot of people is a good investment strategy. Canada also has a vast diversity of mineral endowment. It ranks in the top 20 countries for 37 out of 83 commodities that are tracked by the United States Geologic Survey. And it's truly a natural resource country. Um, going well beyond mining, you know, you have fishing, you have agriculture, you have uh, all sorts of different natural resource industries, timber, and about 8% of its GDP comes from mining versus only 2% in the U.S. Being next to the United States also helps. You know, the U.S. may have the world's largest GDP, but we don't really have a natural resource culture here, and we depend on others to get our raw material, and Canada produces more than 50% of the U.S. net imports for up to 18 different commodities. So Canada's sitting in the catbird seat from a financial standpoint, there's a heck of a lot of money and a lot of investors just south of the border. And you provide us with a great service with the commodities you provide us. So according to our host, the Northern Miner, and, and I have to give them a shout out, they, they went overboard giving me data. Katja, thank you so much for all your help. But this is important because according to the Northern Miner, Canadian companies own more than 3,700 projects in Canada, with Quebec representing 940 of these projects. And as someone who's spent, invested hundreds of millions of dollars in Quebec, this is no surprise, given how hard the Quebec government works at attracting mining investment. You can see that Ontario's in second place and British Columbia's in third, and then the other provinces and territories 
constitute a much smaller section. Again, this is something that Northern Miner provided me with. The yellow dots are projects in Canada. And you can see that there's three very big concentrations. There's the West Coast, which really stands out. You have the East Coast in Quebec and Newfoundland. And then you have Ontario. And what I find really interesting is that you have these three concentrations, but they're not all for the same commodity. They're for a variety of different deposit types and different commodities. And this is important because you don't want to be a mono commodity country. So what I did is I took all these projects and I classified them by their major metal. And as you can see, gold represents over 50% of these projects. In second and third place are copper and silver, and then you can see the other commodities beyond that. Gold is by far the most popular, and you're going to see this time and time again in this speech, but I've got some interesting stats about gold and gold deposits. The world has more than 1,400 gold deposits, representing almost 4 billion ounces. 329 of these reside in Canada for about a half a billion ounces. Canadian companies, however, through either full or partial ownership, control 310 of these deposits for, again, about a half a billion ounces. But globally, and this is what's really important, Canadian companies control 838 deposits for almost 2 billion ounces, or roughly 47% of the world's gold resources. When we look at the biggest deposits, say over a million ounces, because that's what investors tend to focus on, 95% of the world's gold is tied up in 625 deposits. 20% of these reside in Canada. Within Canada, 38% of its deposits contain more than 1 million ounces. And, and these ounces represent over 90% of the Canadian gold ounces. What's really interesting to me is when I started my career in the late Cretaceous, million ounce deposits were exceptionally rare. Well, so was the gold price. It was at 35 bucks an ounce. I mean, because the gold price is so high now, people can lower the cutoff and it exponentially grows these deposits. But million ounce deposit, there's an awful lot of them in Canada. So many players and so many deposits to choose from. If you're an investor, it's a veritable smorgasbord of opportunity. Now, you're all familiar with the Fraser Institute. As far as I can tell, they're the only group that does an annual survey looking at attractiveness indexes around the world. Canada provinces hold five of the 16 most popular places to invest. And if you go out a little further, Newfoundland is number 21. Very, very strong representation in the attractiveness. And this goes, again, back to the regulatory regime, to the infrastructure, to the culture of Canada, and it explains why it always ranks very highly. Statistica put out a report in 2021 that shows that Canadians are, Canada is spending over $800 million a year in exploration. That's more than any other country by a long shot. Uh, look at Australia, they're at a little over $500 million. So the question is, why is this? And again, it goes to the endowment and it goes to the ability to raise money in Canada, which I'll discuss in a minute. Now let's go from Canada to globally and talk about the Canadian companies. Globally, Canadian mineral companies own more than 6,100 projects in 97 countries. Again, this comes out of the Northern Miner database, which is a superb uh, data set, by the way. The vast majority of these deposits are located in North America. And by North America, I mean Canada, US, and, and Mexico with Latin America being in a distant second place. But there's much more to this story than just the number of projects. As leaders in creating global mining standards, when Canadian companies operate in foreign jurisdictions, they also take these standards with them and share them. 
And this elevates the world in mining practices, which as you know, with the current emphasis on ESG is very, very important. And the reason I bring this up is I find in a lot of the speeches I hear, particularly about Canadian mining, it's seldom emphasized. But for those of you who interact with groups like the Ontario Securities Commission, you know how hard they work at finding rational solutions and disclosure rules that are currently updating 43101, which has turned out to be a wonderful document for investors and companies alike. I really think Canada decides a lot better creds on this issue that they're personally carrying global international standards to the rest of the world. So then what I did is I took a look at these projects and what stage they're at. And roughly half of the projects are at the prospecting stage. But the other 50% have a defined resource and are usually at some level of engineering or luckily if they're lucky in production. This is great because it means whatever the investor is looking for, they have the full gambit with these Canadian projects and these Canadian companies. Now, this slide is really interesting for me. I, I was kind of surprised when they put it together. The data comes from ENMJ, who annually tally capital spending. And what you see immediately looking at these bars is the massive role that Canadian companies play in global mining. They overshadow all the other nationalities when it comes to capital spending. And this capital, of course, leads to jobs, tax revenues, sharing of expertise and culture, and a major role in building new mines. So where does all this money come from? And this is where things get complicated. In 2018, because I don't have a life, I reviewed 257 stock exchanges around the world in search of their mineral and mining companies. I then boiled it down to those exchanges that collectively represent 80% of the global market capitalization. Everybody remembers the old 80-20 rule. It really does apply. And uh, because I don't speak Greek and I don't speak Russian, uh, I was really glad to be able to work in languages I actually can read. What happens is when you do this, it boils down to five countries. Canada has five exchanges. I'm sure you're familiar with all of them. Australia has one. The United Kingdom has three, and the United States has at least seven. God only knows how many stock exchanges are on the OTC. It seems like every week there's a new one. And then I included South Africa, which has one stock exchange because South Africa is such a, a major player in, in production and in geology. Going forward, I'm going to refer to these countries' exchanges, but I'm going to usually label them by the country name rather than having to read each one off again. So... Most of the Canadian exchanges are owned by the TMX group. And what I find interesting and powerful is that it serves as a graduating platform for companies as they grow. And no other stock exchange company really does this. Canadian mineral companies account for 59% of this total data set. And in second place is Australia. The remaining exchanges have very few companies, but they have a lot of market cap because they cater to the world's largest companies. Canada, however, is the home of nine of the 15 largest public mineral companies. So then what I did is I, I broke it down looking by stock exchange and the distribution of companies. And what you see is that the TSXV hosts 39% of the total company count, followed by Australia ASX exchange with 28%. 90% of the companies are listed on one of the top five exchanges of which three of these exchanges are Canadian, and I have them highlighted in yellow. So for those investors looking for a good investment, I mean, there's easily a 10-bagger in here. Just kind of sort through which of the 
thousands of companies it's in. So then I took the same database and I sorted it by market cap. And as you can see, the New York Stock Exchange ranks number one, but the TSX is number two. And more than 92% of the mining industry's market capitalizations are listed in one of the top five exchanges. So what I did is I sorted and ranked each company by their primary commodity focus. As you know, you know, let's just take gold, for example. There's gold companies that have copper projects, but they sell themselves as a gold company. If you look at their assets, they're principally gold. So I went through all of the companies. There's you know, roughly 2,400 of them. And I sorted them by their primary commodity focus. And as you can see, gold, copper, and silver are the most popular, followed by nickel, lithium, zinc, and uranium, if we only look at the top 10 commodities. And then because everybody's talking about green metals these days, which is an interesting word, I highlighted the metals that were considered green because again, investors are looking for green metals. And as you can see, there's 331 Canadian companies that are chasing these green metals. Australia also has strong representation with 232 companies and the other exchanges only have token amounts. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on the green commodities, but the only reason copper is a green commodity is because when it oxidizes, it turns green. So I took the same data set and I sorted it by market cap. And we see that on the basis of market cap, the three biggest metals are gold, iron, and copper. And if you look at this slide, the collective market capitalization of these top 10 commodities is listed at the bottom. So then I went through each company and said, what is their most advanced project stage? The Canadian exchanges outnumber all the other exchanges in just about every category. But we do need to recognize the Australians here. They surpass the Canadian in feasibility and development stage projects. But most of their projects are located in Australia, where Canadian companies are, are globally distributed. And then I'd like to finish with some final shout outs. I need to start by acknowledging, obviously, the Northern Miner for providing me the data and providing a great newspaper and data sets for like, I don't know, 500 years or something. The TMX group and the OSC also need to be acknowledged. You know, in the corporate world, money is the food that allows companies to operate and grow. And having had the privilege of interacting with both of these groups, I can say with great conviction that their corporate cultures are one of helping and not hindering. Their rules have been tested by time, makes sense. And I can't say that about some of the other exchanges, particularly ones near my home. And look at the results. This graph here shows that the TSX plus the TSXV have grown more than 160% in cumulative listed market capitalization over the roughly the last 10 years. And this is despite downturns, pandemics, and the Nordiques, <clears throat> excuse me, I mean, the Colorado Avalanche winning the Stanley Cup. And this goes even further. I mean, the TSX and the TSXV complete more than 1,300 financings each year for mineral companies. And this leads to literally billions of dollars in capital raise, which is what we need to go and discover, develop, and operate mines. Now, for those of you who don't know me, I come from the royalty world. And so I can't help myself but include a royalty slide. In 2009, when we had the Grand Recession, a lot of the traditional mining banks pulled out and they left this big gap for financing. And that gap has now been filled by the private equity firms, which as Anthony said, I spent the last decade working with, and with the royalty and streaming companies. I wanted to bring this up because they're a very powerful force 
in mine finance. And as shown in this graph, there's currently 36 public mineral royalty companies, of which 26 are Canadian. And if we just look at Franco Nevada and Wheaton Precious Metals, together, they represent more than 60% of the industry by market cap. And if you throw in the American company, Royal Gold, you're now at 80% of the industry value. We have a lot of small up and coming people. They're fun to watch. And all of these companies are looking to provide financing. So finally, you've decided you're going to go on the hunt for a next project, for your next investment. So you stretch your legs and you get on a plane and you said, well, where am I going to go? Well, Vancouver, Perth, and Toronto host more mineral companies than any other city in the world. So you actually don't have to go very far to cover a lot of ground. In distant fourth and fifth place are London and Sydney, and Montreal is in sixth place. And you'll notice that I, I'm looking here and Denver is number 11. I know most people only use the top 10, but I had to sneak in my home turf, at least in one slide. So let me sum this up for you. You know, you have everything you need to invest in mining in Canada. You have a strong natural resource culture, thousands of projects in, in Canada, and even more globally that are owned by Canadian companies. You have an excellent investing infrastructure between the regulators, the financiers, the lawyers, the accountants, and everybody else. On top of that, you also have probably more expertise in exploration, engineering, metallurgy, and, and even drilling companies than anywhere else in the world. And this brings it all together and explains why Canada has become the center of the universe. So why wouldn't you invest here? Thank you. fascinating presentation from Douglas Silver at the Global Mining Symposium. There's nothing like the data, is there? There is nothing like the numbers. So I hope you enjoyed that. And it looks like Canada is doing all right. Center of the universe. Maybe we should make t-shirts. Thank you once again for joining us on this week's program. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.